Hebrews 9.27 says, And inasmuch as, it, inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment. This past week I was looking through our church membership book and adding some names from our recent additions, just catching it up. Kenneth and Donna Preston down here placed their fellowship with us recently. Paige Hill that had been baptized a couple weeks back and just a week ago Friday I baptized Bradley Buchanan. And so I was just catching up making sure I had all the names in the book. But I noticed some red ink in there which comes from my red pen because through the years when people pass away, when they die, I would write above their name, deceased. And I started looking at every page and how many wonderful people that were once such a part of this congregation have gone on to be with the Lord. Many of them were faithful members of this church for years and years. Several of them were charter members of this congregation. I saw names like, and this is not an exhaustive list, please know that, but names like Webster and Helen Bartholomew, Hazel Crowder, Maxine Cottle, Lester and Juanita Cotton, Mamie Cannon, Judy Cunningham, Lance Cunningham, May Engel, Helen Eckes, Carl and Kathleen Fye, Harold and Winnie Grove, Glenn Hessler, Bonnie Hassler, Jack and Sammy Jones, Jim and Fern Jacobson, Don and Ruth Lathrop, Howard and Mary Leasty, Jake and L.V. Langston, Albert Leach, Harley and Sharon Leg, Jean Moore, Martin Miller, George and Jean Mullins, Ron Mason, Harriet Meek, Jake and Mary Middall, Bill Newell, Sam Newell, Catherine Oney, Nina Poland, Donna Roark, Paul and Ellen Smith, Sam and May Satterwaite, Ruth Spidell, more recently Sherry McVeigh, Earl and Ruby Tracy, Clara Tuttle, Virus and Rogene Wright, Fred and Shirley Wright, and the list goes on. And I could give you some medical reasons why some of them died and some of those medical issues were what led to their death on the specific day that they died, but that's not really the real reason why they all died. They died because it's appointed for men to die once and after this comes judgment. They died because of Adam's sin in the Garden of Eden. After Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, God said to Adam in Genesis 3.19, By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And so physical death is the result of Adam's sin and the fact that what Adam did affected all the human race after him. And that's why... All those people died. They died by divine appointment because each person's physical life ends in physical death. But then what? What happens after we die? 
Because death is only the end of our physical life here on earth, where do we go after that? And are we conscious of what's going on after we die? Or do our souls sleep and we enter a state of unconscious eternal existence? What happens after we die? Is there anything in the Bible that gives us the answer to that question? And yes, there is. And Jesus himself helps us to understand what happens when we die. And so in our series here in the Gospel of Luke, we come here into chapter 16, beginning in verse 19, where Jesus tells the story of what the heading is in my Bible, the rich man and Lazarus. And in that story, he gives us a lot of information. Here's what he says. Now, there was a certain rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, gaily living in splendor every day. And a certain poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate, covered with sores, longing to be fed with the crumbs that were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Now it came about that the poor man died, and he was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away, and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received your good things and likewise Lazarus' bad things, but now he's being comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you there's a great chasm fixed, in order that those who wish to come over from here to you may not be able, and that none may cross over from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. But he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to them, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded if someone rises from the dead. Now, I don't know if in any of your Bibles the heading would be the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. There are those who call this a parable instead of an actual event. If it is a parable, then it's the only parable where Jesus gives a proper name to someone, Lazarus. Most of the time in Jesus' parables, he says, a farmer went out to sow a seed. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell among thieves. No other parable has a proper name in it. And Jesus himself doesn't call this a parable. I personally believe this is an event that literally happened. That there was such a rich man. There was such a beggar named Lazarus. There is such a place as Hades. Now notice the contrast between the two men. There's a poor man and a rich man. The poor man becomes rich. The rich man becomes horribly poor. There's a poor man on the outside. There's a rich man on the inside. But then there's a poor man on the inside and a rich man on the outside. There's a poor man with no food and a rich man with food. Then there's a poor man at a feast and a rich man who can't even find a drop of water. 
There's a poor man that has immense needs. There's a rich man who has no needs. But then there's a poor man who has no needs and a rich man who has great needs. There's a poor man that desires everything because he has nothing. There's a rich man who desires nothing because he has everything. And then it's completely reversed. And a poor man that has everything desires nothing. And a rich man who has nothing desires everything. There's a poor man that's licked by dogs. There's a rich man surrounded by dignitaries. Then there's a poor man surrounded by dignitaries and a rich man isolated among the worst of dogs. There's a poor man that suffers and a rich man that's satisfied. Then there's a rich man who suffers and a poor man that's satisfied. There's a poor man that's humiliated and a rich man that's honored. Then a poor man honored and a rich man humiliated. There's a poor man who wants a crumb. There's a rich man who feasts. And then there's a poor man who feasts and a rich man who wants anything, a crumb. There's a poor man that seeks help, a rich man who gives none. And there's a rich man who seeks help and a poor man who can't give any. There's a poor man that's a nobody and a rich man that's a somebody. Then there's a poor man who's a somebody and a rich man that's a nobody. The poor man has a name, a rich man has no name. There's a poor man that seeks help, a rich man that gives none. There's a rich man who seeks help and a poor man who gives none. What a contrast between the two. The beggar, Lazarus, was laid every day at the gate of this rich man. The implication is that the rich man had to be aware of Lazarus' destitution. He's laid at the gate. Don't tell me the man had a secret entrance and never walked past Lazarus. He knew who Lazarus was. He knew Lazarus' need. And apparently Lazarus had asked for the crumbs that fell from the rich man's table, but he received none. Not a crumb. Rich man didn't do a thing to help a needy person. Most of our world today would have contempt for poor Lazarus. And they would envy the rich man. That's how it is in this world. Of what about when life is over? Because both men die. Why? Because it's appointed to man to die once and after this comes judgment. Neither riches nor poverty can keep a person from dying. The rich man had a funeral because he was buried, it says. But the body of the beggar, of Lazarus, may have been cast into the city dump. Which, by the way, the name of the city dump for Jerusalem is Gehenna. Which was the word that Jesus most often used to refer to hell. Gehenna. The beggar was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man went to Hades and was in torment. You see, death comes to all, but it does not end existence. When a person dies, they go to an intermediate place where they are conscious, knowing, and being known as they wait the final judgment and eternal existence. This intermediate place has a name. It's called Hades. Hades is not synonymous with hell. Hades simply means the abode of the dead, the place where the dead go. Now in Greek mythology, Hades was the god of the underworld. And so the name Hades came to be used to denote the kingdom ruled over by this mythological god. And then came to be referred to as the place where the dead go. The Greeks thought of Hades as the location that received everyone that died, all of the dead. And it was divided into two regions. One, a place of torment, 
the other a place of blessedness, sometimes referred to as paradise, and sometimes referred to as the bosom of Abraham. Now Jesus in the rest of the New Testament teaches about the abode of the dead or the place where the dead go, but their teachings are not based on Greek mythology, but rather from what the Old Testament teaches about Sheol. Sheol in the Old Testament is a Hebrew word that means the abode of the dead, the place where the dead go. So the teaching of the Old Testament makes it clear there was belief that a person maintained consciousness after physical death. There was rest and blessedness for the believer. There was a place of torment for the unbeliever. And that's exactly what we see in this story that Jesus gives here in Luke 16. The poor man, Lazarus, died, was carried by angels to a place of blessedness, the the bosom of Abraham. The rich man died, he lifted up his eyes in a place of torment. And so what this passage appears to teach is that at the time of physical death, there is no break in memory, no break in mentality, no change in personality. What a person chooses to be in this world, he will also be in the next world. Paul Butler, in his commentary on the Gospel of Luke, says that the Bible seems to teach that there are four states of existence for man. You'll see them on the chart on the screen. There's the innocent state. Infants and Young children are apparently in a state of moral innocence until they come to an age of what we call an age of accountability, where they are accountable for their own actions, where they can come to believe in God and what God says to do. And they remain in that innocent state until they are mature enough to disobey God and sin then they're no longer in that innocent state. We call that an age of accountability. Now, you're not going to find that term in the Scriptures, and there's no categorical determination in the Scriptures as to the age a person will be when he reaches that moral accountability. Children develop at different stages, don't they? Some mature more quickly than others. Now, the Hebrews arbitrarily declared young men to have reached that age at 12 to 13 when they were given their bar mitzvah, which means they become a son of the commandment. So there's that innocent state. If a child dies before reaching that age of accountability, dying innocent because the scriptures nowhere teach that they are born with the sin of their parents, or anyone else's sin, they go to be with the Lord. Then there's the choice or the probationary state that all persons who remain alive in this world long enough to make an intelligent, free, moral choice to disobey God's will, well, they'll do so because all men sin, don't they? Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But God's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And so he has declared his plan of redemption in the New Testament. And all who hear and believe that plan and obey what God says to do, they become citizens of the kingdom of Christ. 
But those that don't repent and disobey are sons of darkness, servants of the devil. Every sinner is dead in sin, separated from God. But every sinner who believes the gospel and obeys it has been resurrected to a new life in Christ and is reconciled to God. God covers his sins. Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for their sins. So there's the choice state. But then it's appointed to men to die once, okay? So you have this intermediate state that we're talking about from the rich man and Lazarus. All people die physically. All human beings must eventually be separated from this earthly body. And when that occurs, that, that which is really us, our spirit, our soul, however you want to call that, is separated from our earthly body. And when that happens, we go to a disembodied, intermediate state of conscious existence. And in this intermediate state, there are two existences. Paradise. Jesus said to the thief on the cross, what? Today you'll be with me in paradise. Okay. For the saved people. And there's a place of torments, as we've seen in our text today, for the unsaved. And between those two places, there's this great gulf or chasm that separates the two realms over which mankind cannot pass. And there in that intermediate state, all mankind awaits the final state, which will be realized at the second coming of Jesus, which that's the fourth state, the final state. At the second coming of Jesus Christ, the great white throne judgment takes place. He who sits upon that throne will judge all of mankind, Revelation chapter 20. Eternal destiny will be determined on the basis of what's written in the books. Some will go to eternal blessedness. Some will go to eternal separation from God in hell. But those who by faith and obedience to the gospel have taken part in the first resurrection will be forever in the fellowship of God and will not suffer what is called the second death. So take a look at the chart up there on the screen because that outlines what I'm saying about as well as anything that I've ever seen. You were born, oh, next slide there, Amy. There we go. You've got people when we're born, okay? People that are saved will go through the narrow gate into paradise. Those that are lost will go through the wide gate into a place of torments. There's a gulf fixed between the two. Awaiting the resurrection, where those that are righteous, those that have obeyed the gospel will be rewarded and will enter into our eternity in the presence of the Lord, new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells, and the lost will be cast into the lake of fire, which we call hell. Now back to the story that Jesus gives us. Because beginning in verse 24, the rich man cries out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus that he can dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue. I'm in agony in this flame. And so the rich man must have been a Jew. Because he refers to Abraham as father three different times. So he would have been familiar with the Ten Commandments. He would have been a believer in God. He knew the last six of the Ten Commandments taught us how to relate to people. I think he would have understood the rightness of compassion. And yet he never showed any. At least none to Lazarus. 
And now he's in torment, crying out in agony. And did you notice that Lazarus never says a word in this entire story? Not a word. No indication he complained or blamed God for his condition before he died. And now in a state of peace and blessedness, he doesn't gloat or even refuse to be an errand boy. He just remains silent. Abraham does the answering. He tells the rich man that what he asks is impossible. There's a great gulf or chasm between the place of blessedness and the place of torment. It's uncrossable, unbridgeable. Now before he died, that rich man could have reached out to Lazarus at any time. But once in eternity, the gulf can't be crossed. And now for the first time, the rich man showed some interest in somebody else. And he wanted Abraham to send Lazarus back to life to go warn his five brothers. He figured that if Lazarus returned from the dead and gave an eyewitness account, his family would believe and escape the judgment that this rich man found himself in. But Abraham said, no, they've got Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. The word of God through Moses and the prophets would be sufficient to keep him from this destiny. But the rich, the rich man disagreed. He said, no, Father Abraham, but if somebody goes to them from the dead, they'll repent. In essence, he's saying that Moses and the prophets and God's word was not enough. This wasn't enough. In fact, he might have been trying to excuse himself by arguing that he would have repented if somebody from the dead would have come to him. And by the way, that's exactly what our culture says today. Our culture says the Bible's not enough. It's not enough. Resurrection, it's not enough. We need special signs and wonders. Then we'll believe. How arrogant people can be. Daring to tell God what he must do if we're going to believe. If God would just send someone back from the dead, great multitudes would believe, would they? Jesus' story shouts a resounding, no, they won't. Because Jesus himself came back from the dead. And though some believe, many like the rich man and his brothers didn't believe. And so Abraham tells the rich man, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they're not going to be convinced, even if somebody goes back from the dead. And we know that to be true because many have hardened their hearts to God's word and have rejected Jesus even after he walked out of his own tomb. And it's still the same today. So what does this story have to say to us that live in the light of the cross and on this side of the resurrection? Well, for one thing, we need to take to heart the scriptures that tell us to show mercy to others. Show mercy to others. 1 John three seventeen says, If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? James 2, 15 and 16, suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? You see, just like the rich man in the story, our use of our wealth in relation to the needs of our neighbors reveals our spiritual state. And if we claim to be Christians, but our material wealth is used only for our own pleasures, if we're not generous and compassionate in our use of wealth, if we just hoard our money, if we only give what amounts to, to crumbs to others, then we don't truly believe God's Word. 
We've deluded ourselves. And there just may be a mighty reversal awaiting us that we won't like one bit. Are we Christians? Do we believe God's word? And our faith will affect the way we use our wealth. Because money speaks. And so the right use of our possessions in this life is significant for all of eternity. Here's the second thing. We should also learn that our task as disciples of Jesus is to communicate the Word of God clearly and plainly, understandably, lovingly to an unbelieving world and then to let every hearer make his own decision. Every human being deserves the opportunity to hear the Word of God, to hear the gospel presented in an understandable way at least once. And remember, we're not responsible for the choice they make. We're responsible for the communication. And when we see in this story what results for those who don't obey the gospel, all that ought to motivate us more than ever to share Jesus with others, especially if we have family and friends that are headed down the wrong road to the wide gate. And here's the third thing, very simply, be ready. Be ready. Do you know the day and the hour that you will die? No, neither do I. Nor do you know the day or the hour when anybody else is going to die necessarily. But be ready. Are you ready? Some of you remember the old hymn, Are You Ready for the Judgment Day? That's a good question to ask. I pray that you have prepared and that you are ready and waiting for the Lord. Whether you enter into eternity through physical death or maybe you're still alive on this earth when the Lord returns. And if you are, then you don't have to experience that physical death because as 1 Corinthians 15 teaches, your body's going to be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye and this mortal body will put on immortality, this perishable body will become imperishable and so on for those that remain unto the coming of the Lord. But for most of us, if the Lord tarries, we're going to enter into that existence through death. Are you ready? Is it to be feared? Not if you're a Christian. The Bible does call death an enemy. And that the last enemy to be destroyed will be death because Christ is going to take that and the devil and throw it into the lake of fire. But if you're ready, then your death is just your graduation day into eternity into a place of blessedness. But it's your choice. We're going to sing a hymn of decision today. If you have any kind of public decision you want to make, you can meet me down front. If there are private decisions, well, make them where you stand. Give in to what the Holy Spirit is calling you to do. Let's stand and sing.